Welcome to another episode of the Childhood Evolved podcast. I'm your host, Teacher Alex. As I say each episode, it really wasn't that long ago in our history as human beings that the state of childhood wasn't considered to exist. People who thought differently from the pack sensed this possible future and pulled it into reality one step at a time. They fought for it. They didn't give up on it. They were willing to become vulnerable. And so over time, things changed and they evolved to the point that they're at today. And we can continue this work, pulling one another into the future, into these new possible realities. And we can do this by bringing topics into the light, into our conversations, onto our show. We can unpack these topics. And what I found in my, in my years as a teacher is I have a lot of questions. And I don't always come up with a lot of answers. But what I really do is come up with more questions. And these conversations take me deeper into my own understanding and appreciation for child development and human nature and all of these things. And so bit by bit, we can evolve together. We can co-create this reality, this world that we want to inhabit instead of accepting where things are today. So welcome to the show. So I was reading my Sunday paper today, and I come across this full-page ad for a children's toy, quote-unquote educational toy, that is supposed to be a fun, fast way to get kids learning. And I thought, wow, i got to do a podcast episode on this right away. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about that ad and some of the products that are on the market this holiday season marketed towards young children. I'll talk about my take on kids learning and what they could be doing with their time playing, things like that. And at the end of the episode, I will go over some gift ideas, things that we can get for young children that will empower their learning, that will feed their passions and help them be more creative and just draw these things out of them that we want to draw out of them and cultivate. So at the end of the episode, I'll go over a few different gift ideas. And just before I get started with the episode, I realized as I was getting ready to record that it's been just about six months since I started the show. So that feels kind of exciting and definitely want to thank everyone for their support. I I see that the show has been growing. There's a couple new states, different countries on on the app, on the Anchor app, which show where my listeners are. So that's super cool. And I wanted to thank everyone for that. And if you haven't yet, please check out my Patreon account. I'll link that in the show notes. It's another cool way to show your support and to be part of our group. So like I said, this morning I got up, I opened the Sunday paper, and I'm reading, and I do see this full-page ad for a children's toy that's supposed to be a fun, fast way to get kids learning. And of course, it piqued my interest. There's a little box below, and it says this is for kids age 3 to 5. To me, it looks like some kind of screen or device, and it has a bunch of letters on it. Maybe they're plastic letters. I don't know. So I do a little research. Turns out this is something designed to work with an iPad or a tablet. The website promises a hands-on approach to early learning with a tablet, right? It talks about hands-on games that encourage preschoolers in core subjects, and they mention that it's backed by research. Now, I'm not exactly sure which research they're citing, But in today's show, I'm going to draw on my education in child development, human development, and early childhood education at the undergrad and at the master's level. And pretty much everything we've talked about during school or learned is research-based. It's kind of one of the requirements for, you know, for university and learning about child development. It's not 
opinion so much as what has been demonstrated in the research, which is what I find really cool about child development. When you're talking about a field, whether it's parenting, families, preschool, it's a lot of opinions flying around out there, and it's not always things are not always tied back to research. So it's interesting to see that this company is claiming to be backed by research, and it's always interesting to me to try to tie back practices and, and the way we interact with our own children to research. So let's talk about what hands-on learning for preschoolers really looks like, and let's talk about what core subjects of early childhood really are. Well, play is a core subject. It's maybe the core subject, other than relationships. It's the number one method of learning in early childhood. Really, the only method of true learning in early childhood is play. Well, play in relationships. And I don't, I don't mean playing with a screen either. I mean engaging full body, full on with the world, discovering new things on their own or with peers, with parents, with teachers. Social emotional development is the biggest task in the preschool years. And it can be thought of like a muscle. It builds with use. And when children are interacting with screens, these muscles atrophy. This is part of the reason why the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends for children ages 2 to 5 years, this is a quote from their website, for children aged 2 to 5 years, limit screen use to one hour per day of high-quality programs. Parents should co-view media with children to help them understand what they are seeing and apply it to the world around them. And just to qualify that a little bit, there's not a lot out there that's really going to count as a high-quality program. And the piece about parents viewing it with the children is a tough one because I know a lot of parents, they do maybe use the tablet or the screen to get a little bit of break or to get things done around the house. And what I also find interesting is we don't need to guilt trip about that because even in the press conference from the American Academy of Pediatrics, they talked about this. Like, look, if you need 30 minutes to cook dinner or have some downtime and you hand your child a screen, it's not the end of the world. And in fact, if you're taking care of your own needs and your emotions, it can actually have a positive effect too. So the point of this is not to beat yourself up over screen time. But at the same time, we shouldn't be striving for screen time or thinking that it's going to be something that benefits children in a big way. Because what children really need to be doing is engaging with the real world full on. Big body play, rough and tumble play. It's one good example of a really valuable play style. It's observed in humans and animals. Children learn about facial cues and they learn about the limits that their friends are giving them with verbal and nonverbal cues in these situations. They learn so much more in real time than they're ever going to get from a screen. And guess what? The stimulation on screens changes really rapidly. Whether it's a TV show or a game, children who have too much of that are going to become easily bored with books, which really don't change that fast. And so this big body play and all play is something that evolution has brought us because it, it works. It gets children developing into the adults they need to be to survive out in the world. And that's why we see this play style not only with humans, but with animals as well. And we have to remember, children are new to this world and everything is potentially exciting to them. Whether when they're digging in the sandbox at school, they discover these little bugs and they're fascinated for, for hours, for the whole morning. And they'll come back to these bugs again and again over the course of a, of a school year. They just keep coming back. They'll overturn stumps and see what kind of bugs are under there or look in the pile of leaves. They also climb the tree. They figure out how to get back down safely. There's a lot of learning that goes into figuring, especially figuring out how to get down. It's not so hard to get up. But to navigate your way back down the tree, especially if there's other children on the tree, it's really hard. And there's a lot of learning that takes place there. 
They also learn that some trees have sap. They learn how to negotiate for play materials with peers, and in doing so, they develop vocabulary and tools to regulate their own emotions with the support of caring adults. Children mix paints together and discover the endless varieties of colors they can create. Children build entire, entirely new worlds out of blocks. They learn about gravity, balance, structural integrity, and geometry. And I can go on and on with the different play experiences that children engage in and the benefits, the incredible benefits to their development. And so what about academics and school learning, you may be wondering. As I've mentioned, children are full-bodied learners. They're developing their capacities to be social and to regulate their emotions. And these two things go hand in hand. Play is the method that evolution has adapted for us humans and other animals to achieve those goals. So there's a reason why some of the top performing countries in the world in the academic domains don't even start until children are seven years old. And Finland is a great example of this. They don't start any formal academics till children are seven. Before that, it's all play-based. And they're right up there at the top of the list in terms of literacy and math. And America's somewhere down in the, in the 20s or 30s, I believe. And there's a reason for this. There's something called the five to seven shift in child development or the attainment of the age of reason. Because before that time, children are magical thinkers. They're still getting a handle on how the world works. And so if you reach back, not that far actually in our own history in America, kindergarten you know, didn't exist and then it existed. It was, it was intended to be this half-day, play-based kind of gentle introduction to school so that it wasn't a total shock when children turned up in first grade and had to do schoolwork and whatnot. And it's really evolved into a monster since then, into this often full day. And it's not really compulsory, but it, it kind of sort of is. I mean, everyone goes, you kind of have to go, even though it's not technically required. And children are learning reading and they're learning math and all this crazy stuff. And I put learning in quotes because are they really learning at that age? And if so, what is what is the cost to what they should be doing, which is playing. And I mean, part of the reason I stuck with preschool when I was originally a college student, I was in the early childhood education field and thinking about kindergarten or first grade. But I'll tell you, as a college student, I had to go into these classrooms and like one of the assignments I got was just to hold this stopwatch and watch children read these like these stupid stories about clowns and stuff out of these textbooks. And they were these kids just looked depressed and unhappy and the room just had a very negative vibe to it and it's not the teacher's fault this is just the way our system works and you know the bell would ring and all these children would just jump up and leave the room and new children would come in and I don't know it was like a factory or something it was pretty terrible and that's why I was attracted to stay in preschool where things at least in some preschools are running the way they should they're play based and so if children have been playing through their early years They've had these nurturing relationships, then they'll be in the best possible position to learn that more formal stuff once they're ready. There's another area of development that occurs in these early years called executive function. And it's the kind of the prefrontal part of the brain where self-regulation happens, regulating emotions and impulses, inhibiting the impulse to do something or delaying gratification, being cognitively flexible. All this stuff develops during the preschool years and it continues to develop actually into adulthood. But really, children need this stuff in order to sit still at a desk and to engage in this academic learning. If they don't have that down, then they're really not ready 
to feel successful in the school environment. And play is the way that they're going to get ready to do this because we can tell children all we want, like, don't do this, don't do that, sit down, sit still, whatever, whatever the case is. And they'll do their best. But when they're playing, when they want to be included in a game with friends, they're going to inhibit their impulse to push or shove or hit because they're going to get rejected from the game by their friends. If not, they're going to stay on task and stick to their role in the game. All of these things are super meaningful to them because they're with they're playing and they're with other children. And so that's really when these muscles get stretched and how they can develop. And with the adult stuff too, with following directions and you know listening to stories, things like that too. But the play piece is really, really huge. And once they've developed in that area, then they're going to be ready to sit and attend to that more formal learning. And actually, play itself sets up the very same abstract muscles that are needed for learning about letters and numbers and all that stuff. Why? Because letters and numbers are themselves a form of pretend. Think about it. Letters are just lines and squiggles on a page. They have no intrinsic meaning. They only mean what we attribute to them. And so this is the same capacity early in life when a two-year-old pretends that a block is a phone and it continues to develop as children pretend that they're a mommy or daddy in a dramatic play game and eventually they'll start telling their own stories and maybe teachers write them down all of that is pretend and that that all builds the the same area the same you know i use the word muscle in quotes in the brain not literally a muscle but that that's a great way to think about it it's building all the same stuff that's going to allow them to become readers and writers and do math and in the scientific method too and all of that later on they need to be playing first and foremost so you can take a breather your three-year-old does not need to engage with letters and numbers yet in this way certainly not on a screen what has been shown to be incredibly beneficial is reading to and with your children from birth or even before birth if you can help nurture a love of reading and literature with them this motivation this relationship they form with books will carry them into their school years. It doesn't hurt to have a print-rich environment to incorporate letters and numbers in a meaningful way into everyday life. This is what we do at school. We incorporate words and counting and numbers as often as we can in a way that makes sense, whether we're counting out the little pieces of food at lunch or talking about how old children are, things like that. So children learn about the world in this meaning-rich way. And then in play, they assimilate all of this confusing and complicated stuff in the world of adults, they assimilate all of that into their own world in order to make sense of it. And so learning about letters and numbers on a screen, isolated from any meaning in their real lives, is a waste of their time, and it's a waste of your money. And I, of course, would say the same thing about flashcards, which is what used to be more popular before iPads and all this. And so, by the way, children will learn about these letters and numbers if it's pushed on them. But the learning is really shallow, really surface. A child being able to recite the names of letters and numbers, that's just vocabulary. That's really, really simple stuff. If a child knows that a B is a B or that an 8 is an 8, it doesn't really mean that they get the concept. What, is, what does B really mean? What sound does it make? You know, what, what is the concept of 8? Just because they can point at an 8 when they're 2 years old and say 8 doesn't really mean much of anything, actually. And so people who push this type of learning with flashcards or screens would be better advised to help their children engage in the real world or the world of pretend, which is real to children. So another one of the claims of this toy, which is what I'm calling it, it's a toy, um, is the ability to teach children 300 new words. That, that's, that's the number they give on the website. So your average three-year-old is going to recognize about a thousand words. 
and it's going to grow to them recognizing about 10,000 words when they're five. And the best way to help your children advance linguistically is to talk with them, to facilitate dialogue between children. This is something we do on a daily basis in the preschool. Instead of holding up a flashcard with an interesting new word, we let the words come up naturally in everyday life. Often when I'm reading a book to children, we'll come across a complex new word. So I'll ask if anyone knows what it means. Some children may volunteer an idea. It may be, you know, quote unquote, right or wrong. Uh, sometimes they have no idea and I'll, I'll give what I think it means, the meaning. Um, and that new word, it's, it's in their vocabulary in this really meaning-rich way because it came out of a story that they're enjoying. And it can also come up when we're talking about, like, phenomena. Children ask questions. Why does it, you know, why does it rain today? Or where do the clouds go at night? Things like that. And instead of giving them the answers, we facilitate discussions so that they can learn about the give and take of ideas, the scientific method, so they can develop their own ideas, but also so they can develop language. And in these discussions, we will introduce complex vocabulary words and explain what they mean and then move on. We would never try to go over an entire list of words at one time out of context. I mean, for what goal? Why? Why would we do that? When they come up naturally one at a time here and there over the course of two or three years of, of preschool or child development at home, that's how you see their vocabulary, their receptive vocabulary, meaning the words they recognize. It grows to 10,000 words by the time they're five in this setting. So no, you don't need to buy a toy or a screen that's going to quote-unquote teach them 300 new words. And again, what, is, what does that even mean? You have to ask yourself, when a child knows a word, can they use it in context? Does it add meaning to their life? Or are they just parroting something back? Now, another interesting claim made by this particular toy is the ability to quote, build letters. And I actually do have tools available for children in the classroom to build letters and other shapes. And what we have is little lines, little curves. There's two sizes, big and small, and there's two shapes, straight and curved. So there's four different shapes. Children show a natural interest and curiosity in letters and words from a very young age. They're especially interested in names, their own names, others' names. And so we have a print-rich environment. We label the cubbies. We have words and names and things everywhere, all over the place, with pictures, too, to help make meaning for the children. We have, at our writing area, we have a laminated page out that shows all of the capital letters. And then we have these, these shapes that I just told you about. And so what children, when they want to do, when they choose it, they can kind of sound out their ABCs. And they might get a help, help from a teacher, but often they get help from another child. And they can figure out which letter on this piece of paper is the one they want. And they can look at it and, and break it down into these really simple shapes. There's only two shapes. And there's only two sizes. And every single letter can be compartmentalized, broken down into those easy shapes. So they build the letter on the table. And then it's much easier for them to now copy it onto paper with a writing tool. But again, this happens only when the children choose it, when they want to write a note or a letter or label their picture with their name or give a picture to a friend and write their name on it. Sometimes teachers will transcribe a note or a story and, you know, the children narrate it and we write for them. But especially as they get a little older, they want to write. They want to start writing. They choose the message. They choose the words that are meaningful to them. And if they want to, they sound out the words. There's not yet a right answer because this allows them to do that work of connecting the letter to the letter sounds to the letters themselves. They, they build meaning in this way. So we sound out the word together. If they want to write birthday, 
these my job as the teacher is to kind of slow it down for them but 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 what letter says ba and it can take a while you may have to wait 10 seconds or 30 seconds for them to think and they might say p or x or something usually they're pretty close but they may not be and then we say okay if that's the letter that you choose you write it down and this helps them to feel powerful and competent keeps their interest and motivation alive for a future writing endeavor but it allows them also to form this connection and this meaning in their own head they're doing the work of figuring all of this out and it's not necessarily about the right or the wrong answer but the process itself and it's all built around meaning it's never a chore it's never a learning test they have to do and it's never isolated from context and hey it's also pretty cheap you don't really need to buy anything i mean you need paper and pencils markers whatever and then these lines that i ordered from amazon which they're actually called handwriting without tears which is a whole program i guess for handwriting and i have i have no idea i don't do the program i didn't watch the the dvd or follow the guidebook or anything i I pretty much stuffed all of that in the closet and just took the wood pieces out so i cannot <laughs> cannot vouch for the program itself but if you want the materials they're called handwriting without tears and you can find them pretty cheap on amazon i think they might have been like 10 bucks or something like that so with all of that in mind the holidays are coming up whether it's christmas hanukkah whatever or even when you're just thinking about birthdays or just stocking your home or your school environment for your preschooler or really children at all different ages. You know, older children are a little bit outside my area of expertise, but I still know books over screens, right? Engaging with the real world in a meaningful way over rote learning. That's always that's always a good thing. So gift giving ideas. Okay, magnifying glasses, science items that are age appropriate, right? Maybe a telescope, binoculars, something that's going to spark their interest and be a simple tool or something that's going to enable them to start what could be a lifelong journey towards learning. I mean, for me, when I was about 10, I flew on a, a jet and I really, really loved it. And I came home and I wanted books about airplanes and I wanted a flight simulator for the computer, which I guess that's, I mean, I was 10, 11 years old by then. And I think in that context, the computer did help my learning a little bit. Anyway, not to get too far off topic Topic with that, I did end up learning how to fly planes and, and become a pilot. And so that was really sparked by just being on the airplane and loving it in the first place. And so when we're talking about like a science kit, don't get something that's too complicated for a three or a four-year-old. You know, if it's something with beakers and little experiments and stuff, that's best best for an eight-year-old and you give it to a four-year-old they're just going to mix it all up together and they'll still learn they'll still have fun um we don't really want to push the instructions on them at that age and you may not want to spend whatever whatever it costs for that kit when they're going to do that with it um and you know don't be surprised either if the thing that gets the most use and this is kind of cliche but it's true the box that things come in may get more use than anything else and yeah, that's, that's, there's something really powerful behind that because when children have an empty box, they create their own meaning out of it and they do what they want to do with it. So at these younger years, something more appropriate might just be colored water and different containers they can pour it in and out of or like a sensory table, something we have at school. Maybe a gardening kit, you know, seeds and soil and things like that, depending on, I don't know, what climate you live in and what can grow at different times of the year. That could be something really exciting that sparks an interest for children as well. 
books. I mean, I can go on and on about books. I did go on and on about books in two different episodes you can find a couple months back called How to Raise a Reader, I think is what I called it. When you give a child a book or a journal, right, so they can start drawing down their ideas and you can kind of help them transcribe or whatever, or if they're an older child, they can write in a journal, you're fostering their relationship with books and reading and writing. And books are probably the most fantastic gift, in my opinion. But if not a book, maybe a gift to go somewhere, maybe a museum membership or, or just a ticket to go to the museum. Somewhere they might be exposed to new ideas or some, you know, a little bit of traveling. I don't know, different people have different budgets and vacations and trips may be a little bit too much for a holiday like Christmas or Hanukkah, but maybe not, depending on the culture of your family. A trip is invaluable, an invaluable and irreplaceable experience that can really really can change your life. So travel, um, high quality items for dramatic play, for pretend play, dolls, dishes, anything that big people use, you know, vacuum cleaner, whatever, coffee pot, a doctor kit. Um, hey, maybe, a, maybe a pet, a real pet, just saying, I mean, depending on if you, if you want a dog or a cat or a turtle in your home, this could be the time to introduce that in an exciting way. And there's a ton of learning that comes through caring for a pet, or maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you already have your pet. Whatever, that's just one idea. Um, bikes, skates, items for physical play, or keep it simple, bubbles. You know, bubbles are, children love bubbles, and they're fascinating, and they're fantastic, and they're not expensive. So many of the best things that we can get for our children actually aren't expensive at all. They're really cheap or maybe even free. So those are some of my gift ideas for children, or even when you're just thinking about how to stock a play area or materials at home for children so that they can engage in their world in a meaningful way and empower learning. Um, stay away from screens. You know, they're, they're going to get enough of that. You're going to have a harder time resisting screens and kind of steering children away from that and placing limits on it. So they don't need, they don't need more screen time. But really think about your child, what their interests are, and what you'd like to cultivate and develop in them. Because our children come to us as they are. We can't choose what they are or aren't interested in, right? But we can nurture and develop it and help take it in powerful directions with the gifts we use and with the toys and materials we stock in home for children.